You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. It's it's weird to talk to real people. No, I do that as a teacher all the time. I teach at the university, as Nick said. But it's it's something special to to see God's people gathered together again and to be able to do this. Um, yeah, it's deeply meaningful. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive in and close out this series we've been doing on the Book of Psalms. I can't wait. Uh, let's pray, Father. We're grateful that your goodness. Is, is stronger and deeper and more tenacious than our exhaustion and than the circumstances that we face and then where we're at um, in this particular moment. We're grateful that you want to meet us here in your goodness, in your faithfulness to your people. We're grateful that you want to speak through your word, God. I just pray that you would, that you would help us to fix our attention on you this morning and what you have to say. I pray this morning that anything I say that's, that's unhelpful or that's not of you would just fall away, that it would be forgotten like a TikTok video. And anything that is, that is truly you speaking to your people, that that would be sticky and it would be remembered and that people would turn it over in their minds and meditate on your teaching so that they become people of flourishing um, in the midst of a really unstable world. We love you. We know that you love us far, far deeper, and we are eager to hear your voice this morning. We declare this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Uh, Well, we're in the final week of this mini-series on the book of Psalms, right? A set of ancient worship songs that God's people have used to respond to him for centuries. Uh, David Ross, who I always want to call Dr. Ross, um, introduced the Psalms two weeks ago by describing them as deeply human responses to a good and unfathomable God, uh, which I think is a pretty good capsule summary of what a psalm is. Deeply human, emotional response to a mysterious and beautiful God. And in the last two weeks... Uh, David and uh, my uncle, J.D., have drawn out a number of important things about the Psalms, right? They're driven by images that capture the relationship between us and God. They, they model deliberate, persistent engagement with God instead of passively transferring facts about him. They show us God's unconditional goodness and faithfulness. And you've probably noticed that the Psalms are less proposition-based and more of a picture of people wrestling through their relationship with God. Eugene Peterson says about the Psalms, they're not a rule book defining the action, but a snapshot of players playing the game. And like different angles in a kaleidoscope, the Psalms speak to all different seasons and experiences in our lives. So we've been exploring the Psalms through three of the most popular ones, um, teasing out how their images and reflections can speak to different seasons in our own lives. So David looked at Psalm 1, uh, which describes the person who intently focuses on and follows God's law as a flourishing tree. And then J.D. shepherded us through Psalm 23, which paints this technicolor image of God as a good shepherd who cares for his sheep in an arid and hostile environment, 
Whew, that preached to me this last week, let me tell you. And today we come to the last psalm in our series, Psalm 62. And if you read through this psalm and maybe talked about it in your small group, maybe you noticed that the emotional tenor was just a bit darker than the first two psalms. Um, it's like the second movie in a trilogy, like the Empire Strikes Back, if you're a Star Wars fan, um, where things are dark and it's hard to see the way through. Because Psalm 62 is a psalm for God's people in crisis. Crisis. What does that word bring to your mind um, when you hear the word crisis? Can you think of an event in your life? Does your body respond in a certain way? Sometimes crises are immediate and shocking. Like the drop in my stomach the sunny Friday morning when I got a call saying my husband was on his way to the ER. Sometimes it's the sudden twist of an accident or an argument that changes everything for you. Or sometimes crises are a slow burn, a chronic illness, the weight of a painful loss, a difficult boss or professor, a legal or financial struggle that just dogs you. Or we can talk about big picture crises. If you're prone to anxiety, don't Google the word crisis because it's a little unsettling. I did that. It was a bad idea. Depending on what you're reading, right, the country is in crisis, the economy is, the workforce, the church, the climate. Um, and, and there's a lot of legitimacy to those analyses. But whew, it's, it's not surprising that there's been an 80% rise in anxiety among millennials and Gen Z over the last 30 years. Crisis can feel like our mode of existence. And maybe as I'm talking about this, you can feel your pulse rising and stress settling in your body. And you know that in crisis, when life is hard or you're in survival mode, it can be difficult to concentrate on anything past just making it. In those moments, how do we respond to God? Psalm 62 is going to give us one picture of how we can orient toward God in moments when distress is sweeping over our own hearts. And parts of the psalm read like a deeply personal, private expression. But if you look at its title, which will, yeah, here we go. It was meant for public worship. This is for the choir master. Um, I don't know how many songs you've sung that say, everything is falling apart. I'm really fragile. Um, this psalm is intended to shape how God's people voice their own fears and their confidence in both personal and public distress. And here's how the psalm opens. This is the chorus of this worship song. It says, My soul waits in silence for God alone. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I will not be greatly shaken. That's a baller claim. It's, it's someone who's chosen to draw their attention to God in expectation that he and only he can bring the intervention they need. Um, and it's repeated two times in the psalm. This is the chorus that becomes the backbone for how they respond to crisis. Because I'm waiting for God. I'm fixed on him. He will save me. It sounds very confident and zen to me. And I spent a lot of time looking for a zen celebrity picture to illustrate this. Um, 
But when I'm driving to the ER, (laughs) when I get the phone call, these verses can feel totally beyond me. I'm not greatly shaken. I'm sorry, what? But if you read through the whole psalm, this psalm is unglancingly honest about struggle. And it's been a gift to me this semester. This psalm was a gift to me in the car, driving to do this in quite the week. Because Psalm 62 illustrates the kind of persistent wrestling before God that can bring someone like David to the place where he could make a claim like this. And if we think of the Psalms, right, as game footage of athletes in action, um, I want to suggest that Psalm 62 shows us three moves that we too can make to help us pray when we're in a moment of distress. Those moves are, first, own your distress. Second, own your dependence. And third, own what's true. When we do these three things before God, both individually and together, it helps us settle our souls to wait on God so that we can come to that place of trust. It's not a magic three-step formula that makes us feel serene. I really wish. But the three different moves modeled in this prayer can help honestly orient us toward God so that we can acknowledge and receive his shepherd's care for us, even when the crisis is bearing down. The psalm kind of weaves in and out of these three dance moves, but each stanza sort of showcases one of them. So we'll walk through the three stanzas of the psalm with an eye to how each one models a particular movement. In each stanza, we'll break down some of the images it uses, and we'll also contrast how what it models compares to the way that we're encouraged to respond to crises. And in each stanza, I'll ask a question encouraging you to reflect on how you might put this dance step into practice. So, with that groundwork, let's read the first stanza of this psalm in verses 1 through 4. My soul waits in silence for God alone. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I will not be greatly shaken. How long will you attack a man that you may murder him, all of you, like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence, which would be a good name for a rock band? They have planned only to thrust him down from his high position. They delight in falsehood. They bless with their mouth, but inwardly they curse. So we've already talked about the first two verses and that declaration of confidence. But then in verse 3, we get a sea change, right? Like, that escalated quickly. And it may help to know if you're confused what's happening in verses 3 and 4, that, that David is, is switching here. He's no longer declaring a truth about God. He's, he's talking to the people who are attacking him. He's talking to his enemies. And when he's talking about uh, a man that they want to murder, that's him. He's speaking of himself in the third person. He's the one that they're trying to thrust down. So he's describing his own experience, and he is livid. This is a how dare moment. He's asking how in the world they could come after him like this. And he describes himself as incredibly fragile, right, using crumbling building images. He's like a leaning city wall, just about to collapse, or a fence teetering on the verge of breakdown. And his haters are ready to kick him right at the weak point. And he's especially angry that his enemies are liars, right? That they delight in falsehood. 
Because when it's not clear what's true and what isn't, when you don't know if you can trust someone's intentions, that can leave us incredibly unstable. I don't know if you've experienced that in your own life. And all of this frustration explodes out of him right in the middle of this prayer in a public worship song. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever just wanted to say, how dare to someone? Maybe your own exhaustion and the attacks of life have just made you want to let loose. Hopefully it wasn't on Twitter. Have you been so frustrated or confused by the lies around you that you're not sure what to believe and you just want to let it out? On the other hand, maybe you feel uncomfortable reading this kind of outburst. Maybe you're going, does this really belong in a prayer, let alone a public worship song? I have more often been in that second camp where I I can feel uncomfortable with displays of negative emotion. Uh, And so I tried to think of a few reasons why that's been true in my own life, why I haven't felt safe being frustrated. And so uh, I put up a list, and you can maybe tag yourself if you fall in this. Maybe don't tell someone, but have you ever said this to yourself? I'm too busy to feel right now. You're a U of I student, so that's probably true. Uh, Number two, if I feel distressed, I must not be trusting God. Um, If I let myself feel this, I'll never stop. Or maybe anger doesn't feel safe because of life experiences or other things. So I want to validate that there are reasons why this might not feel comfortable to you. And I think that's one reason why we can feel tempted to ignore distress. To deny that there's actually a crisis or to stuff it and say that we're feeling fine. Um, Or or we might run into habits that help us dissociate, whether that's scrolling on TikTok or consuming another pumpkin spice latte. I did not do that last night. To distract us away from our fragile feelings. But this psalm is giving us a gift. It's telling us that there is a place for expressing emotions, that feeling distressed is not antithetical to faith. The main move that David shows us in this stanza is he owns his distress before God. It's important that it's before God. It doesn't mean that David doesn't trust him. These verses come right after verses 1 and 2 that say that my soul waits for God alone. You are not a bad Christian if you feel fragile, angry, or distressed. You're not. In fact, there could be a real danger if we try to stuff our distress or explain it away. Studies show that we do ourselves physical harm when we try to stuff our emotions. So feel the permission to feel distressed and to express it. What matters is where we express that distress. The psalm models that we bring it to God. Yes, David is chewing out his enemies, um, but it's in the context of a prayer. And it, it allows it to be surrounded by these affirmations that God is still his rock. When we're honest with God about how we feel in the crisis, it helps move us past empty platitudes or despair to discover a rock right in the middle of a storm. It brings us to a place where we can see our need for God, and God is able to surround our fears and fragility with his goodness. And so I want to ask, what distress do you need to own? maybe it would help you to make space sometime this weekend or in the next week to to do that, to 
to pour out your heart before God, as verse 8 will say. Whether that's taking a walk to talk to him or setting aside time to journal and just being honest, not holding back. Because owning our distress gives us the space for him to step in and meet us right in that moment. So the first dance step we see in Psalm 62 is to be honest about the crisis and how it makes us feel. And I think this naturally leads us into the next move that this psalm will model in the next stanza. So let's pick up in verse 5. My soul, wait in silence for God alone, for my hope is from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my refuge. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my glory rest on God. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts before him. God is a refuge for us. So verses 5 and 6 repeat that chorus from the beginning of the psalm. But did you see how verse 5 shifts just a little bit from the first time? Hopefully you have the comparison there. Awesome. So in, in the first time, David says, my soul waits for God alone. But this time, he's telling his soul to do that, reminding him where his hope is. He's giving his soul a little pep talk. And just a side note, I think this can encourage us that resting in God is not a one and done thing where you arrive at serenity and you never need to get back there. It's okay if you have to keep encouraging your soul to find rest in God. That is normal. Uh, and, and that's a good sign. If, if you're encouraging your soul to do that, you're on a good path. Where the first stanza lamented how his enemies filled the air with lies, this stanza shifts to declare David's total dependence on God over and over. Hebrew poetry loves repetition for emphasis, and this just drives the point home. He's depending on God. Verse 7 says that he's looking to God for deliverance, But also it says his glory or his honor rests on God. And honor was the basis for social value that meant everything in ancient Near Eastern society. David's not just making some wispy, spiritualized statement. He's staking very real things on God. And he says he's not looking to his military exploits or his status or his spiritual achievements to help him make it through the crisis. And this is the move he models for us. Own your dependence. It's not what you do or who you are that's going to bring you through a crisis. It is God alone. And this is in stark contrast, I think, to the way that we're encouraged to respond to distress, which is by solving problems through our own hustle, saying that our salvation and our honor depend on us. This is the Dwayne the Rock Johnson school of thought. With drive and a bit of talent, you can move mountains. Uh, or um, the Girl Wash Your Face school of thought, if you're familiar with those books. Um, This is a quote, I hope, pray, wish, cross my fingers and my toes, wow, that you will look around and find an opportunity to be your own hero. Um, This is a bestseller, right? Um, And I I haven't read the whole book, so I don't want to knock everything in the book, but I saw this quote and thought, wow, this kind of encapsulates the hustle culture that we live in right? Work hard enough, study the problem well enough, make the right friends or make enough money, be your own hero. And there is value in work. 
And there are definitely times that God is calling us to act in a crisis. But if we decide that it depends on our hustle to solve the problem, that we must be our own hero, we will always reach a limit to our efforts. Sometimes I think we turn to self-reliance because owning our need to depend on something else feels utterly terrifying, especially when we're facing very real stakes. But David can acknowledge his dependence because he knows the nature of the God he's depending on, and he pictures it through all of this rock imagery in the stanza. If David was a crumbling wall, God is a solid rock. I think those are deliberately paired images. We've been encouraged to watch for poetic imagery in the Psalms that captures our relationship with God, and bingo, it's right here. Uh, So let's talk a bit about what rocks mean, because like a good songwriter, David is using references that, that his audience would understand. In parts of the ancient Near East, where military campaigns were common and the environment often afforded very little natural protection, people took refuge in tall rocks. Crags like these, especially ones with limited access that were hard to climb, they were perfect natural forts. Um, They were often military outposts. Entire towns would run to one of these if they were beset by enemies. And David knew all about rocks of refuge. He spent years on the run for his life in the wilderness and often had to hide in caves like this. In a wide-open, arid land, finding a refuge rock meant the difference between life and death. Reaching the rock meant relief. Now, if this location looks familiar to you and you're also a moviegoer, it might be because the recent sci-fi epic Dune was actually filmed in this location. This is in Jordan. It's a place called Wadi Room. Um, Very similar kind of environment. And if you've seen the movie, you'll know one of the giant predators... uh, is a giant sandworm. We'll see if this image comes up. I've been thinking a lot about Dune in conjunction with this psalm because I think it really illustrates what refuge looks like in the face of pretty freaky danger. Um, so let's see if it comes up here. Um, so I will tell you, this is good. You should just see the movie because it's very well made. Um, one of the major predators on this planet where the film is taking place is a giant sandworm. I mean, this thing is massive. It's probably bigger than this entire room, just its mouth. Uh, and when those sandworms appear, if you're not on a rock, you are toast. Uh, anywhere on the sand is fair game because it can burrow up under you, and there's some pretty spectacular images of it. But as long as you reach the rock, uh, no matter what, you're saved. It can't get you there. And I think that pictures the kind of relief and absolute security that it's talking about when it says that God is a rock. No matter how terrifying the monster, if you get there, you can see it, but it can't touch you. And when David calls God his rock, he's declaring that no matter how exposed he feels, there is still a real safety for him. He was secure enough that even people who twisted the truth and made reality feel really unclear couldn't pull him down or overcome him there. And that's what God is for us, too. That's why we don't have to be our own hero. In verse 8 of the psalm, the camera pans out, and we see that David isn't just privately reflecting on his confidence in God. He's encouraging his people, too, that they can feel the same way. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts before him. 
God is a refuge for us. He's safety, survival, even in view of the threat. It doesn't mean that God takes our crisis away. But Eugene Peterson says, all the water in the oceans can't sink a ship unless it gets inside. It may be around us, but it's not going to get in us. And when David makes this public, he's saying that God isn't just a refuge for David because he's king or special. God is a refuge for all of his people. And that includes us as followers of Jesus today. Because of that, we can pour out our heart before him. That image is like pouring out a liquid without holding anything back, like a drink offering. Not a drop is left. You can tell it all to God. You can confide it all in him. He can take it. And so the second move we see in this psalm is to own our dependence on God. To say that our hustle won't save us, but God surely will. And so here I want to ask, are there any places where you need to acknowledge your own dependence on God? Are there ways maybe that you've tried to out-hustle your problems? Or have you been looking for other kind of little rocks to hold on to to make it? And maybe it would help you this week to make some space to just acknowledge before God that you can't do this on your own. And that other things can't do it for you. And to just, just tell God that, that you're going to depend on him. Because you know you can't do it, but he can. We're ready now to move on to the third way that this psalm models how we can orient ourselves toward God in crisis. And it's in the final stanza, verses 9 through 12. So let's read that together. People of low standing are only breath. And people of rank are a lie. In the balances, they go up. Together, they are lighter than breath. Do not trust in oppression and do not vainly rely on robbery. If wealth increases, do not set your heart on it. God has spoken once, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. And faithfulness is yours, Lord, for you reward a person according to his work. There's kind of a shift in style here. If you've read other books in the Old Testament, especially like Proverbs or Ecclesiastes, this might sound kind of familiar to you because this is more like what we call wisdom literature. It gives us principles about the way that the world is wired. It tells us how it is. And this is David's third move. He chooses to own the truth about reality, about God, about the other things that he might want to trust in when he's in distress. And David uses this nice compare-contrast tactic that is an English teacher I love. First, he talks about the, the bad refuges that we might try to use, money, people, power. And then he talks about God and God's nature. Because just like standing on a rocky height makes it easier to see the landscape around us, remembering who God is brings into perspective the other things that we're tempted to rely on in a crisis. So those first two verses, 9 and 10, they meditate on some of the most popular refuges that we try. When our backs are against the wall, we may hope that knowing the right person will save us. Networking, 
Or we can get inordinately obsessed and worried about the danger that people pose to us. But no matter who we think is a danger or a refuge, if we weigh them on a scale, David says they're lighter than that puff of air in those glaucoma eye tests, if you've ever taken those. Moment, it's gone. Another thing that we do in crisis is we're tempted to respond with the same kinds of oppressive tactics that the world throws at us, right? Manipulating people to get what we need, harming or taking what we want. But David tells them in no uncertain terms, oppression will come to an end. It is not an okay tactic to try and get safety for yourself. And then riches. How many of you feel good when you get your paycheck? Right? I, I feel a little bit, I will feel a little bit more secure on Tuesday when I get mine, um, as long as it's in my account. Um, But he says, even if you have money, it is is a really unstable refuge. And I think all of you, anyone who's lived through 2020 knows that. Um, Money is not going to do it. But in contrast, David declares that God is powerful and faithful. That word that uh, is translated faithfulness here refers to God's covenantal love expressed to us. And so depending on your translation, it might say God's love. But God's loving faithfulness is reflected in rewarding people, right? In responding to what they're doing. And so that means that God was going to reward the enemies who frustrated David so much. They were no longer going to get to prey on the vulnerable or twist the truth forever. One day there would be consequences and David could rest on that because God is faithful. And in the same way, David knew that God would help the person who ran to him for shelter because God is faithful. He would respond to, how, to the way that they approached him. And so David declares these truths. And I mentioned that the style he uses is like wisdom poetry. It's possible that David is drawing on sayings that he's heard from a wisdom tradition and repurposing them in this psalm. Because wisdom poems like this, they're usually passed down. They're communal. They're not like an individual creation. And this traditional phrasing, I think, can remind us that we don't have to figure out on our own what's true. We can draw on a rich storehouse of what other wise women and men have said about God's character and reality. We can find truths to help us in the writings of church mothers and fathers, in the biographies of of followers of Jesus, And then, of course, we can find the truth so clearly in Scripture, right? In places like the Psalms, in the Torah, God's teaching to us. And these truths from the history of God's people anchor us with external reminders that expose the structural flaws in our false refuges and give us a roadmap to our rock. And so David owns the truth through this storehouse of wisdom. And I want to ask you, Where can you go this week to look at the truth? Maybe God is pointing you right now to a particular place in the Bible. Maybe it's Psalm 62. Or or to the story or the writings of a believer who's faithfully followed God and can help us remember who he is. Ultimately, Psalm 1 reminded us we we want to fix our eyes on what is true by meditating on God's teaching. So maybe you want to make time this week, even a few minutes, to just hold before yourself what's true about God. Post it on your bathroom mirror or make it your phone's lock screen. 
Maybe even if you're feeling really adventurous, memorizing one of the Psalms from this series. They're all pretty short. But when we gaze on truth, when we declare it before one another, it has a way of floating up into our mind in the moment of crisis, helping tether our souls to a rock in Jesus. Okay, so we've seen how this psalm models a number of dance steps for responding in crisis, for working through our distress and dependence on God and coming to find hope in his sufficiency. And these dance steps can help us come to that place of declaration that my soul waits in silence for God alone. Right? It's the dogged decision to believe that he will deliver no matter how fragile we feel. It doesn't mean that we're silent about our distress, but we're not trying to pump out our own solutions or run the other way. It's choosing in crisis to fix our attention on him and wait for him to do what only he can and will do for us. So as I've been reflecting on this, I thought about, I've been listening to podcasts a lot these days as I've been commuting to teach here. Uh, And one of the podcasts that my husband has gotten me into is one called Against the Odds. Um, Does anyone listen to this podcast? No? Okay. Wow, I feel really hip. Okay. So this is a podcast. um, They have these little mini-series arcs where they follow people trapped in impossible situations They covered the story of the the Thai soccer team that was trapped in caves deep underground. Um, They they talked about uh, a crew that was shipwrecked right at the foot of the Sahara Desert. So they have like no food and water and they're in the desert. We listened to one the other day where an aid worker was captured by Somali land pirates and lived as a captive for hundreds of days with a kidney infection, lacking the thyroid medication she needed, lonely, malnourished, in constant danger. It's exciting listening, but sometimes it's really hard to listen to these episodes because the people are experiencing so much pain and it just seems like it's getting worse and they don't see relief from their vantage point. But I keep listening to the end because I know that they're going to get rescued in some kind of fantastic beyond belief way. SEAL Team 6 is going to parachute in and rescue them and bring their thyroid medication or a crack team of divers is going to swim miles of subterranean tunnels to bring them out from underground. And the relief is so incredible because they've gone from sure death to life. They are saved. And sometimes it can feel like you might be in the middle of an Against the Odds episode. You, I hope you're not trapped in a cave underground. I really do. But you may feel like a collapsing fence. And the world around you may not feel like it's getting any better. But we can keep listening because we know that our rescuer is coming. We've come to know something about who God is to us. We know the promises he's made and his character. And that helps us keep hanging in there. Sometimes he rescues us from a situation. And sometimes he rescues us through it. Giving us the strength to continue while it's still happening. But we know that because our salvation rests on God, we will be saved. So we can settle our souls before him in dependence, taking shelter in the unshakable truth that he is our good shepherd and he is here for us. And we know that we're saved because Jesus walked through the moment of crisis for us. Each of these psalms we've paused at the end to see how Jesus is reflected in it. 
And we know that Jesus, at the mercy of his enemies at the end of his life, looked a lot like a collapsed wall. He poured out his life for us without reserve. But on the other side of his resurrection, he gave us the promise that he will never leave or forsake us. That he is with us through the deepest valleys and hardest struggles we undergo. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. A rock of safety for us. And that can give us hope no matter what. I'm going to pray.